Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan James, and I'm one of the elders here. And so it is my uh, privilege this morning to uh, open up God's Word and continue our sermon series in the book of John. And today we'll be focused in on uh, chapter 10. So if you, if you don't have a Bible in your hand or don't have an app, you can uh, there's, there's Bibles out on the table there. You might want to get one and, and find your way to uh, uh, John chapter 10. Um, before I um, hop in, though, I wanted to ask a quick question. Uh, does anybody know anything about sheep in here? Anybody had sheep, um, you know, growing up or, or have them now? Um, so, and maybe you just have a perception of sheep. And so let's, let's kind of do that by a show of hands right now. Um, who's in the camp of sheep being, being smart or, or sheep being a little bit on the less than smart side? Okay, well, it's the clear direction is the less than smart side. And a little known, a little, I mean, so growing up, I had, I had some experience with sheep growing up in, in South Dakota. We didn't have a lot of sheep on our farm. Steph, actually, her dad had a lot of sheep, and her family still has a bunch of sheep. And I think they're still in the camp of not-so-smart sheep, too. Um, but my experience with sheep is pretty interesting. We had a few that we had for 4-H projects and things, but for a while, we maybe had 10 or 20 that were around our farm. And we had this one pen that the fence was sort of apparently kind of mediocre because these sheep got to a comfort level where they would just decide that they were going to all jump out at once and, and run across the yard. And so periodically that would happen and, and we would see it and we would kind of immediately run outside, and I would look at them. They'd pause. Usually when the door opened and somebody was out there, they'd all pause together. Speaking of the, not that smart, because, I mean, if they just kept running, there wasn't a lot we could actually do. If 15 sheep are running across the yard or the field, you'd have to, you know, really go get them. But they would stop, and they would all look right at the house where you're standing at the door, and I would... Give them my, my best angry face. I'd give them my best eyebrow furrow. And I would just yell at them, get back in there. And they would all turn around and run right back into the pen. <laughs> They're not that smart. I mean, I mean they, like I said, they could have gone the other way and we would have been messing with them for the next hour and a half trying to get them herded together. But they, they were, they're just not that bright. However, I've been learning a little bit more. In fact, the, I've been reviewing my animal husbandry journals this week. And apparently, apparently, there's been a fair amount of research done on the intelligence of sheep. Turns out, sheep can recognize like 50 sheep faces do you know for how long? Two years. Now, don't ask me how they do this research. <laughs> actually, I, I actually read up on it a little bit. You need to go look. It has to do with poking of little pins under faces when they're showing pictures. Anyway, you should go read up on it because you can imagine that then a sheep would not really, they would recognize the ones that they got poked with and they wouldn't, but they nonetheless, they're able to recognize the faces of sheep. In addition, if you put a sheep, a lamb, a ewe, um, to use proper grammar, into a maze, 
and you've got some food at the end of this maze, and they successfully complete this maze, they will remember the position of that food for almost the next six months. So, hey, I'm, 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 coming on to the, I'm coming on to the other side of the camp from a sheep standpoint. And so, you know, a lot of times, there's, there's a lot of references of multiple types throughout Scripture to, to sheep, to shepherds, to, to leadership, to people, to the church, um, and all of this. And, and so we, we find that today in, uh, in John chapter 10. And as I think about the, the benefits of those sorts of intelligence that they've actually observed in sheep, the third one is that their only way to defend one another is to flock together. You know, they they don't have a lot of aggressiveness. They don't have, you know, much to fight with. But if, if 50 or 100 sheep band together and just basically squish together and do things together, uh, they can't, you know, the, the predator isn't going to get all of them. They bind together. And so it reminds me of the idea of the church. And I'm sure it's not, probably not why, uh, probably why there's so many references throughout scriptures. We think about when, when the church comes together for an initiative, we come together against uh, a common, you know, threat. We come together. Now, you know, we, we sometimes don't get aggressive, but there's power in numbers. There's power in community. There's power in encouragement of support of one another. And we certainly see that uh, today as we turn into John chapter 10. And so um, before we turn there specifically, um, I want to remind us what the setting that's going on. So if, if you were here um, last week, we, uh, Pastor Eric talked about um, in John chapter 9, this, this man that had been blind since birth. And um, Jesus recognized this, and Jesus ultimately ended up um, giving sight to this, this man. I, I was going to say heal this man, but, but when you're blind, you aren't necessarily um, have a sickness. In fact, Jesus clarified that this man wasn't um, sick. He was blind since birth for the specific purpose so that the Lord's power could be demonstrated through him. Um, nonetheless, this man was given his sight, and he was so greatly appreciative and amazed that Jesus had done this. Well, the, the religious leaders of the day, they, they had a problem with this because of the day of the week that this healing had occurred on. And they were, they were questioning and, and peppering the man who had been given sight. And the, the guy was just so appreciative and he ultimately ended up saying one of, the, one of my favorite verses in the Bible was his, really his drop the mic response to these guys in chapter 9, verse 25, when they were pressuring him of, is this man who healed you a sinner? And his response was this. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And so for all of us, as we, as we consider the truth of Scripture, the truth of the gospel, and, and how it interacts with our lives, how we are compelled to share it with one another, I want us to, to remember that, that simple faith that this man had. He didn't know a lot. He didn't have to know a lot. He knew that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords had come to him. He didn't know at that time. He was a sinner, but he knew that he was blind, and now he sees. And so we're going 
We're going to keep probing that question as we move forth. So as that story rounded out at the end of chapter 9 last week, these religious leaders of the day, these Pharisees, they kept on this man, and ultimately they, they threw him out of their community. They said, who are you to think that, that you can teach us? And just this pompous, this pompous attitude. And, and Jesus was, was there and ultimately was completely unimpressed with these guys and, and frankly um, started this process of pointing it out to them and rebuking them. Because really, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they were... They were, they were really leading the, the church, if you will, of the day, the, the temple, um, the religious community. And Jesus was coming in through the course of his ministry, because this was at a time where Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. He hadn't died. He was, he was revealing himself. This whole book of John, this portion of the book of John we're in, is Jesus showing these signs and miracles that his, uh, his power... And really, power to save may be revealed. And so that's his, that was his period of history. But he was coming in, and he was just blowing aside the religious leaders of that day who were all about the law. They were all about the rules. They were all about these things that Jesus was just, he was coming in, and he wasn't working, around, working within their law. He was coming in and saying that he was the one that needed to be the focus, and it just really drove them nuts. And, um, and so we continue to see Jesus um, gradually, more directive, directedly pointing that out to them and to others that were um, listening at the time. And so the, the big idea today that I want you to keep track of, and you might want to write it down, is that is that. Jesus rebuked the leaders and taught who he was. The door of the sheep, good shepherd, and in both of these, Savior. Door of the sheep, good shepherd, and in both of these, Savior. And so, if you'll turn with me now to John chapter 10, we're going to start reading in verses 1 through 6. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to him. So here we've got Jesus using kind of a subtle but not subtle parable to, the, to suggest that the Pharisees 
were perhaps not best, uh, perhaps at best they weren't true shepherds. Because you've got this reference to, to thieves and, and, and robbers not coming to the door of the sheep or the door of the sheepfold. And at best, you've got these, um, these guys that are simply just not true shepherds. And so as we, as we start walking into this parable, it's clear that Jesus is trying to demonstrate this idea that they all would have known, because there were sheep all over in that time and place, was that a shepherd is known. A shepherd is known by the sheep. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and they hear, they, um, and they hear his voice. They know the shepherd, who he is by sight, and they also know, uh, the shepherd knows them by name. They give him names. They recognize him, and he knows each of his sheep. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the sheep trust the shepherd. And I don't know if you've ever been around a farm or been around uh, someone who has sheep or cows or, or any kind of docile animals. It's one thing to chase animals around and get them into a pen. It's a whole nother type of relationship with your animals. If you walk into a pen and you need to take them somewhere and you go in that direction and they come along with you. There's been very few instances of me seeing that actually happen, but I, I have seen it before. And you don't have to ask what's going on. You know it because the animals are following along because it's clear they know who their leader is. They know who they can trust. They know them because they become trustworthy. And so this, um, this, this parable is, is demonstrating to these church leaders of the day through something they're very, very familiar with, that they're not quite hitting the mark. We're coming on the heels of them casting out the man who had previously been blind. So clearly, when Jesus starts talking about trustworthiness, knowing them, these guys were missing the mark. And it, it, it wraps up by indicating that they just didn't understand. And so um, sometimes when, uh, when, when Jesus uh, used a parable to teach, sometimes he sort of let it, he, he let it sink and didn't really explain it. Well, in he sort of did it, and sometimes he really brought it forth and, and explained it. In this situation, he sort of did it both ways. Because these, these guys, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they would have been very well-versed in the Scripture of the day, the Old Testament. And there's a passage in Ezekiel 34 that these guys would have been intimately familiar with. And so, it's, for one, it's a great reminder that the Bible... Is, is one author of God himself, 40 different writers. It, from, from the start, we've got creation. We roll into where um, at the garden, Adam and Eve, with Eve's sin, centers on the world. And then the rest of the pages are a story of redemption, a story of pointing towards a Savior, recognizing that we all are are. are uh, beholden to sin. We all have committed sin, and we're all in need of this Savior, and so, and points towards the Savior of Jesus. And so, it's interesting that in Ezekiel chapter 34, which is 
Ezekiel, a prophet, hearing from God at a time about 600 years prior to Jesus being on earth, prior to this time, that Ezekiel was, was told by God to bring this message to the leaders of the day. And this message was one of rebuke of shepherds. And in those days, the shepherds were, were a, more of a political slash religious leader. But nonetheless, the, the, the shadow of what was yet to come was clear through this story. So I'm going to read Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 3, as, as something that would have been coming to the mind, or you would hope would have been coming to the mind of the Pharisees at the time. It says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. And then jumping to verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. And so I'm confident Jesus would have been really happy with, the, with these Pharisees who would have been knowledgeable of the Scriptures to have a bit of conviction come over them. But ultimately, it wasn't happening. So I'm, I'm not going to go back to... Ezekiel chapter 34 again today, but for the eight students in the room, you should go and read that because the rest of the chapter continues to provide this foreshadowing of what's going on in John chapter 10. And it's so specific. It's, it's, it's almost paragraph by paragraph. The same phraseology is used where, where God Almighty indicates to Ezekiel to use these terms that were so applicable for something that was going on 600 years later. So such a great linkage between time periods that were so far apart. And so as I said, at times, Jesus, he both lets parables sit and allows people to marinate in them and uses them sort of implicitly. And he does this because it's got reflections of Ezekiel chapter 34. But then in this situation, he rolls right into the next few verses and begins to hammer away both um, steadily, more directly than the time before in describing who he was, and that is the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, and in both of those, Savior. So let's continue on in John chapter 10. Um, specifically, uh, verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so this is a, a uh, 
kind of expected, really direct. It's kind of expected, but it's a little bit unexpected. If you think about what Jesus just said in this parable, he was talking about what? He was talking about um, sheep. He was talking about shepherds. He was talking about their relationship. And then he came back. And what you might expect him to say would be what? I am the shepherd. But did he say that? No, he came back and he said, I am the door. I'm the door. He just took six verses to demonstrate the, the intimacy and the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. And he comes back and he says, I am the door. Well, it turns out this, this sort of could be um, viewed in either a metaphorical or a literal sense, because if you can, in your, in your mind's eye, sort of imagine a, a fenced-in area up here, maybe, maybe a, a brick wall that's in, a, in a, almost a circle, but maybe there's a three- or four-foot-wide gap in that pen. And so the sheep could come in that pen, but if you then end up being the shepherd, you come and stand right here, and ultimately, especially for something like sheep that you can kind of nudge around and, and shoo away, you end up being a pretty effective gate. Not so much for like 1,400-pound steers, like cows and that, that they, they can go their way a little more, although they're, they're pretty, most of the time they'll stay in their spots too. But you become the door. And so you have a lot of say. Um, certainly, you're going to at least fight for your sheep and protect your sheep um, and give it your best shot, and then you certainly are providing, you know, a defined protection, a defined coverage for the sheep that are within your fold. Or he could have also been, sort of a, metaphorically speaking, been there opening and closing a gate as these sheep were coming and going. So it can work either way. Nonetheless, he makes the point of recognizing and making the, the, the truth point that I am the door, which brings about this, this imagery of, of both protection and entrance and exit. And, and so as we, as we see him begin to work that out, this first reference is to uh, thieves and robbers. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. And so, again, not forgetting the context where these Pharisees who had just cast out a new believer, someone who Jesus had sought out, asked him if he believed after his, his sight was, was given to him. He said, yes, Lord, I believe. And here these guys turn around and they say, get out. You couldn't teach us anything. And so that led to this whole discussion. And so Jesus in verse 7 says, those who came before me are thieves and robbers. Kind of you know, kind of poking at these guys if they were most likely still listening. And he was, their tr he was the true protector. He was demonstrating an effective shepherd, shepherding of these sheep, and they could certainly take a lesson. And then the next, uh, the next phrase right there, Jesus says this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Okay, Jesus gets right to the crux of the matter with that point. They, uh, anyone who enters to me will be saved. With Jesus calling himself the door and saying that anyone who enters by me 
will be saved, he, he, he links directly claiming a role that he's having in granting a saving belief, a saving faith. And so we come to this, this question for all of us this morning. Like, do we have that saving faith? Have we entered through that door? And so we know Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. And by extension, there's a, a question that we all need to ask ourselves. Once he says, anyone enters by me will be saved. So the question we ask ourselves have I entered the door by Jesus? And so in this, in this moment, Jesus uh, brings to the point that there's a crossing point between him revealing our need for a Savior and a role in granting this saving belief. It brings to mind John chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is rightfully stating that he is the way to salvation. He is the way to forgiveness of sins. Not what the Pharisees are offering. So he makes this clear. Um, it also brings to mind Matthew eleven twenty seven and 28, where Jesus speaks to the appropriation of granting of this eternal life. He says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here again, Jesus is, is um, identified as the, the arbiter of who would come into the sheepfold by his um, authority, by his allowing that to happen. So we do that, and ultimately, when you come into that fold, it's, it's, a, it's a fold of being saved. It's a, it's a salvation moment. But then the next phrase that he talks about in verse 9 is that he will come in and out, giving indication of, of freedom in Christ. I know I, I certainly have, have felt that. It's this, it's this picture and also experience of saving faith, of coming in, coming past the gate where Jesus brings us in to his family, to the family of God. If you will, the church, and if you think back to perhaps when you received Christ as a Savior, and you came into his family, but you also came into the family of believers, the family of God, that sense that you had. And you begin to understand, I think, this idea of coming in and out. There's a safety, there's an eternal safety in coming into the pen, but then there's also this reality of we're in this family, but there's work to do. 
And so you come in and out. You've got life to live. You've got families to raise. You've got jobs to do. You've got people to share the message of the gospel with. But you do this all in the, in the protective environment of this eternal family of God. And so in this phrase, come in and out, we, we feel that. We feel his protection and we know our role. And it is perhaps then most clearly stated or even more clearly stated at the, at the end of that same verse that I was just reading before of Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, where Jesus finishes his thought and says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. So we've got this, this nexus that's happening before. Jesus stands at the door. He is bringing people into his family, but at the same time, he's saying, come. He's saying, yes, I know and I have revealed to you that you need a Savior. And then you come to a point of, of receiving that free gift of salvation. Say, yes, I desire that gift of salvation. And Jesus continues to stand there and say, come to me and I will give you rest. And it harkens back to that verse 9 in, in, in chapter 10 where it says, and you will go in and out, but all under this umbrella of rest of eternal rest, of, of no longer fearing death, no longer fearing the outcome of our sin because we are in his rest that he has invited into and we have received through his gift of grace. So that's kind of parable explanation stage one you might add, of I am the door. And we all need to ask ourselves, have I come in through that door? The last uh, passage there in, in verse 10 says this. The thief comes only to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So what is this abundant life? You know, I've, I think I've heard it described. I think I've probably used it to describe a really enjoyable life, right? We, that Jesus came to give us life in, in salvation, what we just talked about. But then he goes on and he adds the phrase, and abundantly. Well, as it turns out, of course, we have lots of amazing things in our lives. We have, whether, whether it's, you know, all the things I just mentioned before that we go back and forth and do, we, those are amazing things. And they provide some level of enjoyment and pleasure in life. But ultimately, this phrase, in life abundantly, it's a, it's a comparative additional statement to giving you life. It's really a, a statement of, of being amazed and in awe of what eternal life really is. And so in, in John um, in John chapter 17, verse 3, 
it describes, Jesus describes eternal life and abundant life like this. And this is eternal life. That they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ who you have sent. So this abundant life is truly eternal life. And it's eternal life of knowing God. Uh, Randy, Randy Elkhorn, he said this. He said that the best life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, it is the closest they will come to heaven. Jesus coming to grant us life abundantly is a lot less about earthly abundance and successes and a much more about eternal life in heaven being our abundance. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. Have you entered? So let's continue on in, in chapter 10, verses 11 through 16. We've got this second stage of the parable being explained. Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. This, of course, again, kind of poking his finger into the chest of the Pharisees that are probably standing there listening. This is, this is in contrast to the, those leaders because Jesus comes back right away and says, I lay my life down for the sheep. Has anyone here ever changed the oil on a rental car? No? Run it through a car wash? Well, one, one anal person in the room. <laughs> Why not? Why don't we change the oil on a rental? Not, not my problem. I, I, I don't care. Why don't, why don't you care? It's a beautiful vehicle. It's probably cost more than your car, my car. I don't know. It costs more than my car for sure. <laughs> we don't care for it as owner. We, we don't run it off the road intentionally, but we don't, we don't care that way. It's not our problem. Jesus loves us, cares for us, lays his life down for us as owner. We come in to his fold by him, and he is then our good shepherd and he loves and he cares for us as owner. Praise God for that. Again, standing in direct contrast to these leaders of the day that were just caring about their own selfish power, their own 
way of thinking what was right was right. And Jesus was saying, I love you as owner. I am good, the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. In verse 11, verse 14, verse 15, he reiterates this. And he also says, especially in verse 14, I know my own and my own know me. In other words, they have come through this door. Moving on in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says this, for this reason, you know, kind of coming through all of this um, dialogue, Jesus then brings it to a point where he says, for this reason, and he turns the page and he says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, I think all the dads in the room can, can kind of relate with this idea as Jesus starts this little mini discourse. He says, for this reason, the father loves me. For this reason, my dad is thrilled with me. Because what gives a dad more excitement than to see their kid be in agreement with their philosophies, being in agreement, being in unity with something they decided together, maybe in another conversation. And then in a separate situation, you watch them carry it out. And you get this, this you know, thing in you that says, yeah, we're, we're a team. We are united. And man, it makes me love that kid even more. So we've got this picture of the unity of, of the uh, Godhead showing itself right here where Jesus specifically is saying that the Father loves me because I lay my life down. But then he's, he's not just coming back and saying this is a blind obedience. He's saying that I lay it down on my own accord. And then he comes back and he says it again. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to pick it up again. And of course, just, you know, a while later in this narrative, we go through the whole process of Jesus being um, arrested, Jesus being beaten. Remember, he hadn't sinned. He didn't owe this debt. But nonetheless, he was being treated this way and ultimately was hung on a cross to die. But, you know, we, we think about all this kind of drama that was happening during that time. And the reality was, he wasn't being forced. He wasn't being herded into this ultimate end. He was in agreement with his father, and he was willingly laying his life down. All these horrible things that happened to him, he was experiencing it and enduring it and sacrificing it because he was on board with it. He needed to die to cover our sins. His blood needed to be shed because of our sin, because of our iniquity. And he did it on his own accord, on his own authority, because he knew 
he also had the authority to pick it back up again as he would be raised again. And he and the Father were in one alignment moving forward in that direction. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. I know my own, and my own know me. On into verse 19, it describes more so in a, a, a narrator um, role here, authorship. It says this, There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So some were still dug in, but some were starting to believe. Some were starting to be open to the idea of this, of this Savior, this Savior Jesus, who was coming in to circumvent the law of the day, and doing it his own way and demonstrating his power in, in ways that had not been seen before. So the question is, do, do you know Jesus? He says, my, my sheep know who I am, and I know who they are. Do you know this Jesus? Have you come through the door by him? We, each of us, have fallen short of God's law. We, we've sinned. We, you, you can come up with some of the, the simplest ways. If we've, if we've lied, if we've um, looked on someone lustfully, if we've um, been prideful in instances it's, it's a quick study to figure out if we have broken God's law. We have. And we each are in need of a Savior. But have we come in to his fold? Have we become aware of that and recognize that that's a problem and we need a Savior? And do we know him? Do we know him? What if, what if we really knew him as a church? What if we, if we really got on board, and were united together with one another, what might that look like as individuals and as a church? Who would we tell? Who would we prioritize sharing this remarkable news of Jesus as the door to his sheepfold of salvation and Jesus as good shepherd? Is it family? Is it friends? Is it co-workers that we care a lot about and we enjoy immensely, but they're lost? Who would we tell? How would we strategize to have that conversation? I mean, there's, there's some conversations that are just conversations, right? You, you bump into somebody and you start a conversation about whatever happens to float across your mind. Well, then there's other types of conversations, Right? We'd all think of a few of them that we've maybe had throughout the course of our life. Important conversations. Someone's starting or ending a job situation. It's an important conversation. 
you, the person giving it, generally speaking, should think about what they're going to say before they're going to say it, especially if you're ending someone's job situation. That's a, that's a tender moment, a tender conversation. You know, there's a marriage proposal. Hopefully, those of us that have done that thought about it maybe more than I actually did for mine. But nonetheless, it's a conversation that you want to think through. You don't want to jump ahead of yourself and ask that question before you've got your ducks in a row. You think about it. You, you, you don't want a no. You don't want a, even a maybe. You don't want any uncertainty in the voice in that question. Well how, well, how do you keep from that happening? You strategize that and you make sure that you're aligned that questions are answered, and that ultimately you are in position to have that conversation. And so it's the same way. How would you strategize to have an important conversation about a, a, a gospel-sharing, faith-sharing conversation? You don't want it to be two minutes windows. You want to have some time. You don't, you don't want to um, have it be just by chance. You want to, to plan it a little bit. When will you have opportunity? And what words would you use? What ways would you share this truth? Having some bullet points in your mind. Not something you open up a sheet of notes and start reading, but some mental bullet points that you walk through. Strategize. And then never leaving these things just to chance. Praying about them. Asking for God's goodness and graciousness to bring about the, His um, timing and the Holy Spirit interacting inside the heart of that person as, as we face and encounter these situations. So with that, we, we leave here today, and I want you to continue to ponder these ideas as both in our own hearts and the people around us of this idea of Jesus being the door of the sheep. Have I entered into the sheepfold? And with Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, I lay my life down for the sheep. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, we're just grateful for today and the opportunity to open up your word and be, be challenged as, as Jesus, through the, uh, through the rebuke of leaders in that day who were not being true leaders, that he teaches them and he teaches the people around them and he teaches us who he is. He's the door to salvation and he is the good shepherd of the sheep and he has and had the authority to lay his life down. And it looked like the death on a cross and the power to raise his life back up again, to overcome sin, to forgive the sin is a part of all of our lives. We, we thank you for this message. We thank you for this core truth of, of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.